turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. What is the Lord's Supper? You say, well, I know what the Lord's Supper is. Well, I'm glad you do, but, you know, if, if someone came in today and observed what we were doing that wasn't familiar with church and familiar with the practice of partaking in the Lord's Supper, it might seem like kind of a strange thing to them. What are we doing? What are these things that are passed out? The bread and that little tiny cup of juice, what does that represent? Well, we need to know as believers what the Lord's Supper memorializes, what it represents. And we also need to be able to, in this world, defend uh, that to others and explain that to others why we do it. Uh, There is an important significance to uh, the Lord's Supper, and we don't want that to be lost on us. We want to know what that means. We need to make sure that we as believers know what we're celebrating when we come together and enjoy the Lord's Supper together. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb had been killed, the disciples said to Jesus, where do you want us to prepare that we can meet together and partake of the the Passover meal together? Well, he sent a couple of the disciples out and he told them to meet a certain man that they would find. uh, And when they met him, that he would show them a large upper room, and it was there in that room that they were to prepare uh, for the others to come and join them for the Passover meal. When the time came, they gathered together. And at first it seemed like everything was normal, they were eating together, but then there came a point where Jesus did something kind of strange. And that was that he washed, he began washing the disciples' feet. Why would he do this? Well, according to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, we're told that he did it as a sign of humility. He was humbling himself. I mean, everything that he had done up to that point, everything from coming uh, to earth and being born uh, of a virgin and uh, being a babe there in the manger... Growing up as he did, learning the trade of a carpenter, and beginning an earthly ministry at around the age of 30, and all that he had done and all that he had taught, all the miracles that he had done was all now kind of coming together. It was culminating in what was about to take place over the next uh, couple of three days. The greatest act of humility of all was when he died on the cross for our sins. We say that he atoned for our sins. He paid the penalty for. He made things right with God by dying on the cross and shedding his blood to cover the penalty uh, that we owed for our own sins. But it was it was this purpose. This was the purpose he came and that sounds kind of strange. None of us think that about our own lives or we don't really think that about other people's lives that the very purpose that they came for was to die. Now we know that everyone eventually dies. They leave this world. But we would not say of anyone that the purpose that they came for in the first place was to die. We know, no, we see their purpose more in their life and the things that they accomplish, the things that they do while they're, they're here. But Jesus was just the opposite. 
Yeah, he taught a lot of good things and he did a lot of good works, but the ultimate purpose for which he came was to die, to shed his blood, to thereby atone for our sins. In fact, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 tells us that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That was his purpose. That was his destiny. Now, before Jesus died, he taught his disciples how they were supposed to remember him. That which became known as the Lord's Supper serves as a memorial to the Lord Jesus. Well, what is a memorial? We live in a culture that memorializes a lot of things. We have memorials commemorating wars. You go to Washington, D.C., and you can visit the wall uh, that commemorates those who gave their life in the Vietnam War. You can go to the World War II Memorial. Uh, we memorialize those who have given their life for our freedom and for our way of life. There's a 9-11 memorial for those who died in the terrorist attack uh, on 9-11 of 2001. There's a memorial in downtown Oklahoma City commemorating those who died in the Murrow Federal Building there in 1995. We memorialize people for a lot of things in a lot of different ways. We had, there's a pro football hall of fame. There's a college football hall of fame. There's a pro baseball hall of fame. Every sport has its hall of fame. There's a country music hall of fame. There's a rock and roll hall of fame where we memorialize musicians and those who have made uh, great accomplishments in their field and in their genre of music or in their sport. The Lord's Supper was to memorialize the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time, the, the Lord's not in a museum somewhere. He's not a trophy on a shelf. Instead, He's living. And so we don't memorialize Him like we would someone who is no longer with us. His body is not in a cemetery somewhere with a headstone. His ashes are not in an urn sitting on someone's mantle. Why? Because He's alive. We memorialize, though, the sacrifice that He made when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We commemorate His work on our behalf. I invite you, with your Bibles open, to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper uh, with His disciples. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, He blessed and broke it, and He gave it to them and said, Take and eat, this is My body. Then He took the cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say unto you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before this passage of Scripture today that teaches us about the day you instituted your special supper. We pray, Lord, that we would be in tune with what it means. And, Father, it would provoke us and provoke our minds 
uh, to uh, seek a deeper understanding of the significance of what you've done on our behalf. We pray this now in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing that we see in the passage that Jesus gave here is the memorial of Christ's body. The memorial of Christ's body. Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to them and instructed them, take and eat, this is my body. Everything that he did here was significant. Even the breaking of the bread itself because he said, this is my body that was broken for you as he literally broke the bread. It was symbolic. He instructed them and to take and to eat. Well, to, to eat something means that it becomes a part of you. I mean, if you eat food, it, it becomes energy that your body uses. He is saying to take and eat, be partakers of this, consume this in such a way that you are partaking with me in this. You're identifying yourself with me in this. You know, when a person is baptized, what are they doing? They're identifying themselves as a believer in Christ. They're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They're taken down into the water, and they're raised up out of the water, signifying that they're identifying with, with the death that Christ died, going into the tomb, and just as He rose again, they're raised to walk in newness of life. Soon Jesus' body would be broken as the sin of the world would be laid upon Him. Even before, though, He hung on the cross, His body would go through untold anguish. As you know, He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was ridiculed with people's words and accusations and mockery. He had thrust upon His head a crown of thorns. Again, as a form of mockery to inflict as much emotional and physical pain upon him as possible. They said, here you claim to be a king. Well, here's your crown, king. Wear this as they forced that crown of thorns upon his head. Sacrifice of his body showed that he valued something greater than his own comfort or preservation. And that was his concern for others. We value, naturally, some things over other things. There are some things that we'll take money and we'll spend it on because we say we would rather have that thing than we would the money that we have, say, in our pocket or in our account. There are other things that we, we don't do that because... We believe that keeping the money is of greater value than purchasing that thing that we could purchase. Well, what did you, where did Jesus place the value here? Was it on the preservation of His own life? His own personal comfort? His avoiding all of the pain and torment that He went through? No, He said, the value of me giving my life is greater than my keeping it. And thankfully, for you and for me, He gave His life. 
John chapter 15 and verse verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. I'm glad he counted me as a friend. And I know you're glad today that he counted you as a friend. Because that's our only hope. If we were not a friend of God and we were not a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ, there'd be no hope for us. But John 15, 13 records that greater love does not exist than the one who would lay down his life for someone he loves, someone he calls a friend. Who would you sacrifice your body for? Well, maybe you would do it for your kids, maybe for your grandkids, maybe for your spouse, maybe for a very dear friend. But you wouldn't do it just for anyone. Jesus did it for everyone. Not just anyone, but He did it for everyone. Athletes sacrifice their bodies. We say, well, look at the price that they've paid. They've deprived themselves of eating certain foods. They've forced themselves to eat certain other foods. They get up long before anybody else does, and they run, and they lift weights, and they do all sorts of of training-type things. And they work and they work and they work. But guess in the the end, who gets the benefit? Well, they get the benefit. They're the one that wins the Olympic medal. They're the one that gets the championship ring. They're the ones that get all of the recognition. The question then is, would they go through all of that rigorous training if there was some way that they could just hand it over to someone else and let them have all the benefit? Probably not. Probably no one would do that. You see, they're training and they're doing all of this so that they can accomplish something. And there's nothing wrong with that. But just contrast that with what Jesus did. All of the glory, all of the benefit was actually going to you and to me and everyone else. Jesus is still hated by the world and by this world system. In spite of all the good things he does, the world still hates him. The devil fans the flames of that hate. But Jesus sacrificed because he loved us. Volunteers sacrifice something. They sacrifice their time. They sacrifice, maybe in some cases, their bodies. But again, who gets the glory? They at least get part of the glory. They get the thanks. They get the volunteer of the year award. In the wealth of our nation, people sacrifice some of their money. We give money to charity. I saw the other day they were showing kind of a breakdown state by state of which states were the most charitable and which were the least charitable. We get tax deductions. There are certain rewards we get if we're charitable. We get recognition. We get tax breaks. We get lots of things. But it's not the same as sacrificing our bodies. Oh, we might say, I would sacrifice my money all day long. I would would give money. I would 
volunteer my time or whatever, but I don't want to have to suffer because of that. And I certainly don't want to give my life. So the bread that that he broke was to forever commemorate his body, which was broken for mankind. Sacrifice. Notice also the memorial of Christ's blood. He took the cup and he gave thanks. And then he had them all drink from it. They used a communal cup. They didn't have individual ones like we used, but they had a communal cup and they passed it around and each drank from it. He told them in verse 24, This is my blood in the new covenant which is shed for many. The Old Testament law required that blood be shed for, to, in order to make sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 says, in fact, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your, your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. But when Jesus shed His blood, the work of the high priest, and the work that the high priest had been doing for so long, for centuries in fact, was now obsolete. The whole book of Hebrews is about that theme. That Jesus has become the high priest. The the high priest formerly was a human being and, and had to... Uh, be limited by death. They would get old. They would die. And somebody else had to then become the high priest. And then someone after them. And that had gone on for centuries. But now Jesus has become our high priest. He's the one that makes atonement or makes sacrifice for sin. Jesus shed His blood once for all. The theme of Hebrews is that Jesus has taken the place of that Old Testament high priest. Well, there's something, there's something permanent about blood. When you think about blood, there's, there's just a permanence to it. The way we use it, even in our speech, indicates that. People swear blood oaths. When we talk about bloodshed, there is a finality to it that... Other things don't have. We think about war and the horror of war, and we talk about those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. And when we say that, what we mean is that they have shed their blood, they've given their life, they've given their life's blood for something. And in the case of, of our soldiers, it's they've given it for our freedom and to preserve our way of life. And so that... Uh, we don't have to die. They've gone, essentially, and died in our place. Blood is always associated with the ultimate, the most final things, the most serious matters of life. And so when we think of Jesus shedding His blood, we think He made the supreme Sacrifice. The shedding of Jesus' blood was pivotal to the history of mankind.
Before that, we had no hope. The only hope we had is that one day Jesus would come and that He would shed His blood and that He would sacrifice for us. But after it happened, we look back upon the event and we say now the only hope that we have is to cling to that sacrifice that Jesus made. And so when Jesus gave the cup to His disciples, He said, this is My blood, the blood of the new covenant. And the word covenant is interchangeable with testament or will. This is My new will. This is My new testament. This is My new covenant. And it's shed for many. Each time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to remember the supreme sacrifice that our Lord and Savior made. And we celebrate the fact that he that the grave could not keep Him in. We talk about blood and we talk about dying and all, and it would be very easy to say, well, what a, what a downer of a subject. Can't we talk about something happy? Well, if the story ended with just someone dying, that wouldn't be such a happy story. But it doesn't end there, does it? We know what happens after that. Even though Jesus went through indescribable pain and torment and was hung there on the cross and died, was put in a tomb, in a grave, we know that the grave could not keep Him. And on the third day, He rose again to prove He was the Son of God. And He instructs His disciples that they're to commemorate the Lord's Supper until what? Until He comes again for His church. To take His church home to be with Himself. The question for us this morning is, do we know the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior? During the time of invitation that we're going to have in just a moment, it's a time if you've never given your heart and your life to Christ, you can come and you can, you, can, you can say, I want eternal life. I want to turn away from my sinful life. I realize I'm a sinner. And I want Jesus to be my Savior and my Lord. I know He died for my sins, but I want to embrace Him this morning as my Lord. Maybe you would come this morning and say that. Maybe you're already a believer and you're here today and you would say, my heart needs to be right before God before I partake of the Lord's Supper today. I need to make sure that I'm in tune with God. The altar is open this morning. You can come and kneel down here. Uh, there's, something, there's something that makes it more memorable for us if we come and we kneel here in front of, of this building. And we talk to God right there. Now we can do it at our seat. There's no problem with you doing it there. But it becomes more memorable if we come to the front and we kneel down before God and we talk to Him. I encourage you this morning to do that. If you've never given your heart and never given your life to Him, come and do that today. I'd be happy to share with you how you can do that. If there's another need in your life, Come, and we can work through that as well. Come this morning, preparing your hearts, though, to meet around the Lord's table. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we're so thankful 
that we don't have to bear our burdens and our sin and all of that alone. Lord, you've taken care of that problem, the problem we had of being sinners for us. And even though we still fall short of your glory and we still sin, we still do things that we shouldn't do. Lord, our sins are covered by your shed blood. During this time of invitation, I pray that our hearts would be gotten right with you. Draw people unto yourself this morning. Draw us all closer to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.